want you to consider just for a moment what a genius idea the local church really is. And by that I mean, a, of course, a healthy local church. But I mean it. This thing, this thing right here, this local church thing, this is a really great idea. This is a fantastic idea, which makes sense, right? Because the church is God's idea. But you see, the reason why the church is such a brilliant idea is because the church alone can do what the world can only dream about. And what I mean is that sort of close-knit, glad-hearted, sacrificial, unbiased, loving community that the world can only imagine is only possible for this blood-bought battalion of souls called the church. We alone have the power to, to be that. We alone have the, the potential to be that. Because think about what we have here. Here we've got a bunch of people thrown together. Different backgrounds, different last names, different quirks and struggles, totally different personalities. Here you have a bunch of people who, to be totally honest, probably would have never chosen each other as friends. Think Jews and Gentiles here. And yet here they are. And they love one another with radical affection. At least they're supposed to. And yet the question is, why is love so central to the mission of the church? Why is this so central? Why is this part of the deal to love one another? Put it this way. What happens when a church loves the way it should? When they serve one another? And pray for one another? And encourage one another? And forgive one another? And exhort one another? And confess their sins to one another? And speak the truth to one another? And bear one another's burdens? Yes, even rebuke and even warn one another. What I mean is, what happens when you have a community of souls so utterly committed to one another's spiritual growth as their priority? What is portrayed to the world when that happens? in a body of redeemed souls. I'll tell you what begins to happen. When we love the way we should, we become a picture of Christ and a preview of the kingdom. When the church does what it should, it is a fragrance of Christ and a foretaste to the very kingdom itself. And you see that affectionate, glad-hearted, sacrificial love that portrays Christ and previews the kingdom is exactly what's on John's mind this morning. And by now, you well know John's agenda in this letter. Why he put pen to paper, wrote this letter, folded it, put it in an envelope, licked it, sealed it, sent it to these churches in Asia Minor is because he wants to ask and answer three questions of earth-shattering significance. One, what is eternal life? Two, do you have eternal life? And three, how would you know if you did have eternal life? Those are the questions. 
And one of the ways he tells that you can tell that you have eternal life is if, get this now, if you have increasing love and affection for your blood-bought comrades saved in sitting in your own local church. Love is the proof. Love is the evidence. Now don't get me wrong, love is not the only evidence of eternal life. There are other things also, and John describes them in this letter. But you see, John zeroes in on love in particular because you see love when it is real, when it is authentic. It is so undeniably and unmistakably supernatural. And I knew, I knew before studying this, before preaching on this, that John cared about love, that this mattered to him. I knew that. What I did not know is that roughly half of this letter is devoted to talking about love, what it is, what it means, how it reveals itself in people's lives and in a local church. I must have forgot that John singles out love specifically as the proof in the pudding that our salvation is not a hoax, but authentic and real means John really wants our attention when it comes to love. That if Christ is the head and we are the body, then what it is that courses through our veins is supernatural love and affection for one another. And this morning, John gets very tangible and nitty-gritty with us. John gives us street-level Boots on the ground, exhibit A, examples and evidence of what spiritual love and care for one another in a local church actually looks like. And believe it or not, my entire agenda this morning, I have one aim, is to unfold precisely what John means when he says, little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. What does that mean? What is John envisioning when he says, let us love in deed and in truth? Because whatever that is, it's a paradigm. A perfect paradigm of practical love that should we do it will make us a picture of Christ and a preview of the kingdom. Here's where we're going. I am setting a record this morning, 14 points. 14 points. You are not going to lunch today. My apologies. They're going to be short. Don't worry. You'll, you'll make it in time. This morning, what I want to do is I want to give you 14 tangible ways. 14 tangible ways to love in deed and in truth that make a local church a picture of Christ and a preview of the kingdom. That's where we're headed. 14 tangible ways to love in word and in deed that should we do it, we'll make this church, make this local church right here a picture of Christ and a preview of the kingdom and so here we go. Let's begin in verses 17 and 18. 1 John chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. Notice very carefully what John says. He says, But whoever has the goods of the world and beholds his brother having a need and closes his heart against him, how, John asks, does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Now you see it. John's talking about love in really tangible, practical ways, but you also notice that the first word of the sentence is a contrast. But whoever should have the goods of the world. 
The but there means that John's in the middle of an argument. That he's responding to something that he just said. And you see, what he has just been doing in verses 11 through 16, get this now, is that he has been giving us a theology of love. Verses 17 and 18 are the application to the theology of love in verses 11 through 16 that he has been given. And so the question is, what is this theology of love? It began in verse 11. John begins with the, with the command or with the reminder that we should love one another, which is totally obvious, right? We know that. And yet, what is love but affectionate sacrifice for other people? What is love other than you finding your highest joy in helping other people find their highest joy in the living God? What is love but to make tangible for people the glory and beauty of God through affectionate, word-centered care for the needs of other people, and in particular, the needs of other people sitting right here in your own local church. That is love. But then verses 12 and 13, the theology goes on. Verses 12 and 13 is actually a warning that we should love one another knowing that no matter how loving or compassionate we may be, the world is still going to hate you just like Cain hated Abel and slit his throat because his brother was righteous. Be warned. Love is not going to solve all your problems because we're called to be righteous too. But then speaking of love, look what love, look what love, loving one another proves about our soul's condition. Look at verse 14 continues his theology of love. He says, we know that we have passed out of death into life. How do we know that? Because we love the brothers. That's a staggering statement, isn't it? Because we love the brothers, he says, the church, other believers, if we love them, what does that prove about our soul's condition? What does that prove about the condition of the soul? If we love one another, notice his answer, that we have passed out of death into life. Meaning what? Meaning that love for one another specifically is the evidence that our salvation is not a sham, but authentic and real. I mean, can you, can you feel the weight of the premium that the Bible is placing on love as the evidence of authentic salvation? That we've been born again by the living God? It's incredible, but you see, the opposite is also true, isn't it? If loving other people proves that we are saved, what does not loving other people also prove? Look at the end of verse 14. He says, the one who does not love, on the other hand, makes it absolutely clear that he abides in death. In other words, the person who doesn't love in the way that God commands is an unbeliever and needs to be saved. And we know that's what he means because in the very next verse, he mentions them. He says that the person who doesn't love is the person who hates, and the person who hates is a murderer. And you know about murderers. What does he say about murderers? Verse 15, he says, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. It's shocking. And last week we asked the question, what does it mean to hate other people? What does a spiritual serial killer actually look like in real life? And here's the answer. Here's what they look like. It looks like this. A murderer is a need-ignoring, 
self-exalting, risk-avoiding, record-keeping, grudge-holding, self-protecting, church-neglecting person whose primary concern is their own private comfort and convenience, no matter the cost to other people. I mean, you understand, if love is to do what's best for others, no matter the cost to you, hate is to do what's best for you, no matter the cost to them. That is hate. That is murder. Okay, how are you doing so far? Because, I mean, other than sermons on prayer or evangelism, nothing quite hits below the belt than sermons on love. I mean, this kind of stuff just punches us in the most vulnerable part of our souls. And the reason why it does is because it is so opposite of our default inclinations, isn't it? The reason why is because love is not natural. This is profoundly supernatural. Why? Because to love is to die. To die to your comfort. To die to your fears. To die to your convenience to die to your plans, to die to your agendas. Love is to die a thousand deaths a day if need be to do what's best for other people. And what's best for other people is the enjoyment and experience of Christ. Don't you see, all we are at the end of the day, our most important ministry in the universe is to be a conduit through which the beauty and sufficiency of Christ is channeled to other people through his word. Speaking of the beauty of Christ, notice where John's theology takes us. John's theology of love, it takes us to the most radical, sacrificial act of love in human history. Look at verse 16. By this we have come to know, literally, the love, which is that he laid down his life on our behalf, and we ought to lay down our lives for or on behalf of the brothers. This is incredible, isn't it? Because his agenda here, John is saying that the greatest act of love, the greatest display of love in history comes loaded with application. Just as Christ laid down his life for sinful people hard to love, so we are to lay down our lives for those very same people hard to love. (laughs) Namely, one another. So what this does, this brings us now to John's own application in verses 17 and 18. There's the theology of love, 11 through 16. Now the practical application of that in verses 17 and 18. John, what does this mean? What what does this actually look like in real life? Everything you've described. Does this mean that if a gunman walks into the church, that we jump in front of one another and take the bullet? That if we see a bus coming down the street, we push them out of the way and we take the hit instead? Is that what you mean, John? And I think if the elderly apostle were here, he was absolutely. It's exactly, of course it means that. A gunman comes into the church, you fight for the front of the line to take the first bullet. Absolutely. But it doesn't only mean that. This isn't just the ultimate sacrifice. But it is every other kind of sacrifice that leads up to death also. In other words, it is any need that arises in the church that you are able to meet. Verses 17 and 18 again. Just like Christ did. 
We should lay down our lives for one another. But you see, whoever should see, should have the goods of the world, and behold his brother having a need, and close his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Beloved, little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And there it is. John's theology of love. Short, sweet, simple, to the point, and profoundly supernatural. The text breaks down into two parts. Part one, authentic love is selfless generosity. Authentic love is selfless generosity. You can see it in verse 17. Here's what it looks like to lay down our lives for other people. Rather, what it does not look like. Notice John gives a scenario. Look at the text. Whoever has the goods of the world and beholds his brother having a need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? And you see that John, what he does here, he uses a negative to reinforce the positive. Something cruel and ugly to help us see the beautiful. He poses a hypothetical but not so hypothetical situation of someone who has everything they need, the goods of the world, who beholds someone who doesn't have everything they need. See that? And, and notice who it is, the person that he sees. It's not some random homeless person begging on the street. Who does he see who has a need? It is a brother. It is his brother. Not his brother by physical birth, but his brother by spiritual birth. In other words, you know that this word brother, you know what that is? That's code for church. Our spiritual family adopted by the Father through the sin-bearing death of Jesus Christ. You understand, we are connected, you and I. Like it or not, we are connected. Not by our own blood, but by the blood of the Lamb. We are connected, you and I, not by the same last name, but by the name of the one before whom every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord, namely Jesus Christ himself. And you see, according to the Bible's logic, that should create something between us, something that we don't share with anybody else on the face of the planet, namely a kind of allegiance and affection and commitment to do what's best for one another, even at great cost to ourselves. Now, I'm not saying that I am the great at this, greatest at this because I most certainly am not, but you realize that the kind of life in the body the Bible envisions is something so unique and out of this world that it literally has the potential to save lost people out of the world. Do you realize that? That how we do church in here determines if we finish the mission out there. Consider, for example, the first church on the face of the planet. First Baptist Church of Jerusalem. Remember them? Remember what they were doing in Acts 2? And if you have your notes, this is on your notes, Acts 2.42. Again, I'm still thinking about the term brother here. It says the church, they were devoting themselves continually, notice, to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. In other words, they study the word, they did redemptive relationships, they ate together and they prayed every single day. 
That was the church. The text goes on. Listen carefully. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. And you might think, wait, hold on a second. Where's the community outreach? They're not reaching anybody. They're becoming cocoon-ish and closed. It's just this sort of feedback loop of, of fellowship. They're not reaching anybody. Ah, ah, but wait, verse 47. Notice. And the Lord was day by day adding to their number those who were being saved. <laughs> Do you see it? What was happening inside the local church was so beautiful and compelling. It was so profound and supernatural that when people peeked inside and saw the robust body life happening inside the church, they saw a community so compelling they could not help but want to be a part of it, and they got saved. Jerry, what's your point? What does this have to do with 1 John? The point is, all of that is what John means by brother. Brother. That's what he's envisioning, is that. And the problem is with the scenario, it's the opposite of that. It's the opposite of that. Here is someone in the church who has, who beholds a blood-bought comrade in the church who does not have, and he has a need, John says. It's just a hypothetical scenario. It could be financial, it could be material, it could be emotional, but it is always spiritual because all financial, material, and emotional needs affect us spiritually. And you see, like what happens to us every single Sunday, in the providence of God, this hypothetical person is presented with a, an ecclesiological fork in the road. He sees this brother who has a need, and now he has a choice. He can die to his comfort. He can die to his plans. Die to his feelings. And invite this person's mess into his life and make tangible for him the glory and beauty of God. Or he can close his bowels against him and not do anything at all. And this hypothetical person chose option B. Look at verse 17. But whoever should have the goods of the world and behold his brother having a need and close his heart against him, how, John asks, does the love of God abide in him? You see, the reason why I keep calling this hypothetical is because every single Sunday you and I are faced with one of two ways that we can do church. We can play it safe keep our distance. We could be pleasant but private, and we could do as the army used to say, don't ask, don't tell. Do not ask about the needs of others, and certainly do not share with them your own. It's called playing church. That's what John's describing. 
And notice how John says the man responds when he sees his fellow heir of the kingdom who has a need. John says he closes his heart against him. That word heart is literally the word bowels. Guts. It's the word. It's a little crass, which is why our English Bibles don't translate it that way. But you know that almost pain that you get near your groin when you feel something see something painful or sad? You know what that is? The Greeks had a word for that kind of pain. It was this. And so do you know what this bowel closing, risk avoiding, need ignoring, comfort preserving moment is that John describes? We face this all the time. We've all been there and we've all done it. What it is, is the moment of the excuse. It's that moment of a dozen rationalizations. We're in that moment, we know in a split second that to go down that path with them, to love them, to really love them, to open that can of worms, to, to go down that road with them requires simply more than just writing a check to them. What it requires is an investment of our lives into theirs. We intuitively know, don't we, in a split second, all the comforts we're going to sacrifice all the free time that's going to slip away, all the extra responsibility that that relationship is going to place at our feet, and in a moment faster than the speed of light, we decide that the cost is just too great. And that moment of rationalization where we decide that the cost to love them in the way the Bible describes is just too much for us is exactly what John means when he says he closes his bow. Compassion is your pain and my heart, which moves me to deeds of comfort and mercy on your behalf. And this is the opposite of that. Now, don't misunderstand. No one person can meet every need in the church. That's why you need a whole church to do this. And, and this, this isn't saying that you have to be everybody's best friend. It's not saying that. It doesn't, mean that we have to, it doesn't mean that we can't be closer to some people than we will be to others. The natural rhythms of life will direct us to the paths of other people, some people more than it will to others, and that's okay. No one's talking about anything weird or forced or synthetic here. All I'm saying is, all John is saying is that church is so much more than a Sunday morning and some programs. What it is is ownership. It's weight and the joyful responsibility of owning one another's spiritual growth as your top priority. That's what John is talking about. The question is, do you see habits in your life of closing your bowels to other people? Have you let tasks, responsibilities, fears crowd out authentic love for other people? Have the excuses for not investing in one another at a deeper than a surface level, have those excuses grown more persuasive to you? 
it's just easier and easier to not plug in, easier and easier to keep your distance, easier and easier to be surface level, easier and easier to not be connected, to be vulnerable to other people. Because think about it, think about it for a moment. On Sunday morning and at small group, we are interfacing with people who have all sorts of needs and struggles, and every single one of them can only be fulfilled by Christ. Agreed? We show up on a Sunday morning or a small group, we are discouraged. We are distracted. We show up Sunday morning, small group, we are burdened. We're weighed down with a thousand cares that threaten to pull away our gaze away from Christ. We walk into the building on a Sunday morning and we are literally entering into a house of pain. But also a house of healing. Why? Because we are called to be agents. Agents through whom the healing and the hope and the health of Christ is mediated to other people through his word. And so the next time, here's application. So the next time you detect any sort of need, and you know those moments, they're sort of more unstated and instinctual than anything else, but those moments when you detect some kind of need... Or the next time you're in a conversation that's been fun but superficial for long enough, instead of avoiding the awkward, avoiding the uncomfortable, avoiding the vulnerable, run into the awkward, plunge into the uncomfortable, be the first to be vulnerable, risk keeping things safe and surface level by asking people how they're doing, how they're really actually doing. What are their challenges and triumphs? How do they see Christ at work in their lives? What are they excited about? What are they reading? To what are they striving? How is marriage? How is parenting? Who are the unbelievers in their lives? How, how can I pray? How can I help? And you just decide in that moment that no matter the extra responsibility that that conversation lays at your feet, that you are going to embrace it and see it through to the end. Because that's the kind of stuff John's talking about. That is what the New Testament means by love. But then John goes and does that thing that he likes to do. Do a bit of a gut check. <laughs> because you see dead men tell no tales, and the habits of our lives tell no lies. You see, if we see bowel closing, need ignoring, risk avoiding habits in our lives, the question is, what question should we ask ourselves? Does that make sense? If we see patterns where we're closing our heart, avoiding risks, turning away from needs, turning the other way. Now, nah, I'm not going to go down that road. If we see habits of that in our lives, what question should we ask ourselves? And John does us a real solid by giving us the very question to ask. Look at the end of verse 17. But whoever has the goods of the world and beholds his brother having a need and should close his heart against him, how, John asks, how? Does the love of God abide in him? <laughs> See, that's the issue for John. That's the issue for John. His whole point in verses 11 through 18 
is to demonstrate that the inevitable ripple effects, one of the inevitable ripple effects of being born again is love and affection for other people and particularly for the people in your church. And to the degree that we don't see that, John says, how does the love of God abide in him? Meaning, how? How can they truly be the recipient of the sovereign love of God that saved them from eternal woe and despair and not have any inclination to extend that love to others? And you see it, right? His question is gracious, but it's rhetorical. His point is, should we see heart-closing need-ignoring habits in our lives, we have every right to question if our salvation is authentic, if we're actually born again. And if you question that, if if you're not sure where you're at, if you might question that your salvation is authentic, that you might not actually be saved, I just want you to know that God's gracious offer of eternal love in His Son, it still stands. It still stands. Right this minute, Jesus Christ stands full of pity, full of power, full of love, ready to save, ready to apply the proceeds of his death to anyone who comes to him in repentance and faith. And so if you have not done so this morning, won't you come to him in repentance and faith? So that's part one. Authentic love is selfless generosity. Part two. Authentic love is supernatural activity. Authentic love is supernatural activity. And, and that's the question, isn't it? Again, it brings us back to the issue, why, why is, John, why are you making such a big deal about love? Why take two and a half chapters of a five-chapter letter to tell us what love is and means and what this looks like in somebody's life? And do you know why? I think he does this because authentic biblical love is just too supernatural to be faked. We can't fake authentic love. Holiness and obedience, maybe. Maybe. And by that I mean, if you don't ask too many questions, and if you don't pry too much, if you keep your distance, you can pass yourselves off as a moral, ethical person. I mean, think Mormons, for instance. But you see, the thing about love is that it's just too supernatural to be faked. It's too involved in people's lives. It's too personal. It's too proactive. It's too intentional. It's too supernatural to be faked or forged, or at least faked or forged for very long. And in verse 18, John finishes his expose on biblical love, at least in this chapter, by giving us a paradigm of practical love that if we do it, will make us a picture of Christ and a preview of the kingdom. Look at verse 18. Little children, he says, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And there it is. There's the paradigm of practical love right there, deed and truth. And John, you can see that he does his favorite thing in this letter that he does to make a point, which is first to say what something is not so that he could tell us what something is. He gives us a wrong and a right way to love. A wrong and a right way to love. Look at the wrong way to love, beginning of verse 18. He says, little children, let us not love in word or tongue. Don't love like that. 
Because loving in word or tongue does not meet the criteria of what authentic biblical love actually is, but that means what exactly? Because I'll have you know that some people have abused this verse to take it to mean that love doesn't speak at all. That love is a kind of silent benevolence. In other words, you can love people, or you can speak truth to them, but you can't do both. I'm just going to love them. I'm not going to judge them and speak truth to them. I'm just going to love them. The problem is that's a false dichotomy and probably a cloak for the fear of man. See, the Bible never pits showing love and speaking truth to one another as if those things were incompatible, as if the Bible ever forces you to choose between those two things. Now, you see, John's point here is that love, it's not that love doesn't use words, but that love doesn't use words only. That love isn't cliches and superficial platitudes. That love is not a phony Christian lingo that sounds good on the surface but has no intention of actually helping people's lives. Because you understand, love does speak. It does. And as we're about to see, almost every single manifestation of love in the New Testament involves speaking. Encourage one another, comfort one another, console one another, instruct one another, warn one another, rebuke one another, speak the truth to one another in love. In the very next phrase, John is going to say, love is indeed and in truth. So John, by no means, he means a silent benevolence that never speaks. But you see, what he does mean is that love is not content with mere lip service that isn't also willing to do whatever it takes to do what's best for others. Because true, authentic love is in deed and in truth, which is exactly what he says the verse of, end of verse 18. Look at the text. Little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. See that? Deed and truth. Deed and truth. Deed and truth. Meaning what? Meaning love is not either doing or speaking, but it is doing and speaking. It is serving and speaking. It is visual to be sure, but it is vocal, absolutely. Because every time John uses that word truth, he always means literal biblical truth from the pages of Scripture. And what that means is, and I said this last week, but, but to be skilled at love means that you must be filled with truth. To be skilled at love, you must be filled with truth. That the truth-filled person is the love-filled person. And the reason for that is because the truth of God's word is alone, which has the power to produce authentic love and affection and care for other people. I mean, you understand, the more you become personally enthralled by the sovereign love of God, the more you become personally enthralled by the saving achievements of Jesus Christ, the more you become personally enthralled by the splendor of eternity, the more you will give, the more you will serve, the more you will love and pour out your life for other people. It's not a guilt thing, it's an overflow thing. Which means if you want to grow in love, you must consequently grow in truth. 
And by that, I mean you've got to read your Bible. You've got to read it up and down every day until you can almost see the words on the page when you close your eyes. Because the more that happens, the more we will love the way John describes, namely in deed and in truth. That brings us now to a paradigm. A perfect paradigm of practical love. And then, Luke, can you help me out? It sounds like this microphone might go out. If you can get one of the, the clip-on one. Hate, hate to put people through that again. But love has a paradigm. A paradigm of practical love that should we do it will be a picture of Christ and a preview of the kingdom. Because again, what does that mean when John says love in deed and in truth? What does that mean? What, what is he envisioning? And he says to love like that, because you know what? I think the New Testament fills in the blanks and tells us exactly what it looks like to love in deed and in truth. And so here we are. Here are 14 practical ways. Let's call them expressions of love and deed and truth that make a local church a picture of Christ and a preview of the kingdom. Expression number one. This will go faster than you think. These are familiar. These are going to be fast. Expression number one, accept one another. Accept one another, Romans 15, 7. Paul says, accept or receive one another, even as Christ accepted you for the glory of God. Think about that statement. Accept one another, just like Christ accepted you. That word accepted literally means that Christ extended a welcome to you. Sinful, depraved, Hell deserving you and me, and he welcomed us into the family of the Trinity. And what that does is make us family, spiritual family, committed to giving each other what is best. Expression number two, admonish one another. Admonish one another. Colossians 3.16, Paul says, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, here it is, admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. This is what it looks like to love indeed and truth, is to admonish one another. You understand that admonish, that word means to caution, to re reprove, to warn, and even to rebuke. That's what this is. Now, love doesn't love to rebuke. doesn't love to do that. But it will do that because love loves too much to let people they love live a lie or live in sin. Number three, to love in deed and in word is to be of the same mind toward one another. To be of the same mind toward one another. Romans 12, 16. What does that mean, to be of the same mind toward one another? It means that you must pray and you must plead and you must strive to make your highest ambition for one another, one another's spiritual health and growth. In other words, you need to pray for this church every day that what you want for them is what they want for you, namely that you would love and prize Jesus Christ above all things. Pray that way. Number four, to love in deed and word is to bear one another's burdens. Did you know that? You are to bear one another's burdens, Galatians 6, 1, and 2. And that sounds awesome. I want people to bear my burdens. You want people to bear your burdens. It sounds really great to have people help lighten the load of life. It sounds like something that you would actually want to do for others. I, I kind of want to do that. But did you know that the context of that verse is when you see sin in someone's life? 
that you see someone in someone's life that sin has a hold. Sin has taken root. There's a pattern of sin in someone's life. And what you do, what you do not do, rather, is you do not ignore it. You don't talk to other people about it. You go and you talk to them about it. And Paul says that you restore them in a spirit of gentleness. And what does Paul call it when you talk to people about patterns of sin in their life and seek to restore them to obedience? Paul says, you bear their burdens. Why? Because sanctification is hard. Killing sin is hard, and we need help bearing the load. Number five, to love in deed and word is to bear with one another. To bear with one another. These are in alphabetical order, by the way. Colossians 3, 12 through 13. Put on, as, as, therefore, as the chosen of God, the heart of compassion, literally the bowels of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Here it is. Bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, so also should you. What does that mean to bear with one another? What does that mean? It is not the fist-clenched, tight-jawed, mere resistance to punching someone in the face. Although you shouldn't punch people in the face. It's not only that. To bear with one another, get this now, to bear with one another, stay with me, to bear with one another is patience with people's fallenness. It's a compassionate objectivity that knows that even when you get hurt or burned or snubbed or overlooked, and by the way, all those things are going to happen to you here in this church. Give me just a second here. Was a compassionate objectivity. Compassionate objectivity, where you know, where even you get hurt or burned or snubbed or overlooked, and again, all those things are going to happen here. We should have no illusions about what this is, what this church thing is. You understand that what this is right here? This is a reunion, a weekly reunion of ex-cons and murderers. First John three fifteen. You understand the church is a recovery room of ransomed sinners and recovering idolaters. You, you understand that, that hurt feelings are inevitable, and so, so to bear with one another is a compassionate objectivity that even when you get hurt, you look at that person who hurt you, and you say, you know what? I understand. I understand life is war. This is hard. They're just trying to figure, out, figure it out, and I want to do what's best for them, even if there isn't perfect reciprocation. Number six. To love in deed and word is to build up one another. To build up one another, Romans 14, 19. To build up, that word means to edify. Paul says we should make for the things that make for the edification of one another. Do you know what it means to edify? That word was an ancient construction term of the Greek world. It means to strengthen, 
It means to reinforce. It means to buttress one another with biblical truth. So instead of picturing one another as mansions of glory, and then you get offended when someone hurts you, if instead you picture one another as dilapidated buildings, then you will see that your role in their life is to reinforce them with bricks and pillars of biblical truth. Number seven, halfway home. To love indeed in word is to confess your sins to one another. To confess your sins to one another, James 5.16. Actually, this is two for the price of one. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. What we need at this church is a culture of vulnerability. Because you see, private Christianity is no Christianity at all. See, the starting point of redemptive relationships is to show people the deepest, darkest part of your heart and ask people to pray. And what happens when Paul says you confess and repent? He says your sins get healed. Number eight. To love in deed and in word is to comfort one another. To comfort one another. Get this. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 4.18, comfort one another with these words. Do you see that? Words. Use words to comfort. Hugs to meals also, but also words. Which words? The words that he just spoke. And guess what? The words that he just spoke were about the rapture which means one of the way we comfort one another is with eschatology and how the world is going to end. And if there was any time in our lives where we needed the comfort of the sovereignty and supremacy of God over history, it is now. Number nine, to love indeed and word is to be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Be devoted in brotherly love. Romans 12.10, what does that mean? I'm not related to you. You're not related to me. Actually, we are. We are. We are extended Adopted family through the sin-bearing death of Christ. And what that should create in us is a profound urgency and weight and responsibility over one another's spiritual souls, just as you would feel weight in your own family for their souls. And speaking of urgency, number 10, to love indeed and word is to encourage one another. Encourage one another, and by that I mean Hebrews 3, 12 through 14, one of the most urgent and loving texts in the entirety of the New Testament. Listen carefully to the urgency. Watch out, brothers, lest there should be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another, Day after day, lest they be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if, if we hold fast our assurance firm until the end. Do you see the biblical definition of encouragement? It's to help one another persevere in their faith so that they don't go AWOL into apostasy. Let's get really practical. If you know someone who has long-standing patterns of sin in their life, and it makes you concerned every time you think about that person, you're probably on to something. You're probably seeing something legitimate. And so your job is to now not let them be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, but encourage them day after day as long as it is still called today. Number 11. 
To love in deed and in word is to be hospitable to one another, to show hospitality, 1 Peter 4, 9. And what is hospitality? But the grace of Christ in edible and domestic form where you have people into your homes and you share your very lives with them. You understand to have people in our homes is more effective than a thousand programs designed merely to get people into the seats. Number 12, to love in deed and word is to serve one another with spiritual gifts. To serve with your spiritual gifts, 1 Peter 4.10. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. We have many, many needs here. Talk to me if you're looking for an opportunity to serve. Come talk to Yevi. We've got plans for you. Number 13, to love in deed and word is to speak the truth to one another in love. Ephesians 4.15. Paul says, speak the truth to one another in love that we may grow up in him in all things. Your most important ministry in this church, in your entire life, is to be an agent of truth into the lives of other people. Last but not least, 14. To love... Indeed, in word, is to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. To stimulate one another to love and good deeds. And by that I mean Hebrews 10, 24, and 25. Let us hold fast our confession of hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good deeds, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves, even as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more, even as you see the day drawing near. In other words, friends, don't let friends treat church as optional. Because it's not not optional. And you may think, yeah, well, you don't have a lot of credibility. You have a vested interest in this. And that's true. That's a conflict of interest, maybe. But it's what the text says. And you see why this is such a big deal. Sunday morning in small group is not because we get gold stars for good attendance. But it's because What the church is designed to do is to love in deed and in word. And with that, you see, that is a paradigm. A paradigm of practical love that should we do it makes us a picture of Christ and a preview of the kingdom. Let's pray to become a church like that. Oh, Lord, we confess that love is hard. None of us is is great at this, Lord. I'm at the top of the list of those who need to grow in this. I see within me a bent towards self, a, a fixation on self. Oh, Lord, we need your help. Grant to us that glorious self forgetfulness 
that recognizes needs and does not close our heart in response, but that you would make us, Lord, and the only one, the only one who could make us the kind of body, the Acts chapter 2 body that makes an impact in the world because of what they were doing on the inside, the kind of internal body life that overflowed, that spilled over the banks and affected other people and saved lost people and brought them into the fold. The only one who could make that happen is you, Christ. You are building your church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We ask you for your help to love in a profoundly supernatural way that puts you on display. We thank you in your mighty, powerful name.